Grateful you're here today. It's great to see you. And uh, grateful that on this holiday weekend, uh, we compare our national remembrance with a promise from the book of Micah that one day nation will not take up the sword against nation and they will never again train for war. I'm grateful for those that have given their lives for our freedom and grateful that there is a day when war will be no more by the grace of God and the power of Jesus Christ. So if you have your Bible with you this morning, would you please open to the book of Micah? And we're going to be in Micah chapter 7. And if you don't have a Bible with you, let me encourage you, open up one of those pew Bibles. And if you're new to the Bible and you're using one of those pew Bibles, I'll give you a shortcut. You'll find our passage on page 828. We're in the home stretch of Micah, just a, a, a few Sundays left here. We're going to, we'll tackle a few verses today. Next Sunday, we will finish chapter 7, and then uh, we'll have one last day in Micah in which we'll take it all in, in one big gulp, uh, in a big overview of the book of Micah. But Micah chapter 7, verses 7 through 13 is where we're going to spend our time this morning. I'm going to give you some pieces of information, and here's what I want you to do with them. I want you to take the information I give you, and I want you to predict the future. Based on the information you have, what do you suppose the future is going to be like? And so here is the information. There is corruption at the highest levels of government. The corruption is systemic. It's the very fabric of power in society. Judges work for bribes. Innocent people are victims of powerful people. The family is deconstructing. Family members are turning on each other. And the religious complex is just as corrupt as the government and in this sea of violence and immorality are a small number of faithful, righteous people, but their numbers are dwindling rapidly. If you lived in that scenario, what sort of future would you predict? My guess is that you might predict an extremely negative future. But when Micah looked at the world around him, which is the world I just described using some of his own words. When he looked at his world with all of its horrors and all of its injustice, but then when he looked to God in all of his faithfulness, Micah saw a future that was full of victory and glory. And so I wonder how you might feel about your own future. You, have, you might have reasons to be pessimistic about the future. Artificial intelligence, Debt ceilings, government incompetence upon incompetence, war and disease, maybe problems at home, or even just the, the reality of your own mortality. For many Christians, their view of the future is dictated by what's wrong with today. And we call that sort of pessimism being realistic. I'm just, I'm just being realistic it's odd that we have so normalized a dreadful view of the future that we call that mindset realistic. But for Christian people, our realistic view of the future is defined by Christ's death and resurrection. 
Our future is not determined by the intensity or the multitude of the challenges we face today, but by the omnipotence and the compassion and the goodness and the promises of God. And so if you will look where Micah looked, and if you will believe what Micah believed, then you will face your future with confident hope in God. Do you think it matters what you believe about the future Christian brother, Christian sister, it matters significantly how we think about the future. And so my goal today in preaching this passage is to increase your confidence in our God who holds the future. And Micah 7, 7 through 13 gives us two reasons to be confident in the future of God's people, even in the face of every possible problem. Before we read this passage, let me help you with some context, give you a bit of of memory of where we've been. Chapter 7, verses 1 to 6, last week is where we spent our time. And you might remember those first six verses of this chapter are a lament from Micah. Right? He starts out, How sad for me, or woe is me, because of the ruin of, of sin in society and the ruin of sin in the family. So you remember last week, he painted a really bleak picture of the impact of sin at every level of human existence. But then we get to verse 7, and there's this major pivot. Everything changes. He looks at his present tense situation, though it's disheartening. And then in verse 7, he begins to look from that situation to the future that God has promised. In this passage that we're reading today, all the verbs are future tense. He's looking to this future. A future when God sets everything right. In doing so, he moves from despair in the present to confidence in God's future. And so I want you to follow along with me as I read Micah chapter 7. I'm going to start in verse 7, and we'll go to verse 13. Micah says, But I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Do not rejoice over me, my enemy. Though I have fallen, I will stand up. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. Because I have sinned against him, I must endure the Lord's rage until he champions my cause and establishes justice for me. He will bring me into the light. I will see his salvation. Then my enemy will see, and she will be covered with shame. The one who said to me, where is the Lord your God? My eyes will look at her in triumph. At that time, she will be trampled like mud in the streets. A day will come for rebuilding your walls. On that day, your boundary will be extended. On that day, people will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt, even from Egypt to the Euphrates River and from sea to sea and mountain to mountain. Then the earth will become a wasteland because of its inhabitants and as a result of their actions. So considering what you know of the darkness of Micah's present tense situation, all that he's laid out for us in verses 1 to 6, is Micah realistic in his hopeful depiction of the future? I believe Micah is the most realistic, and he gives us two reasons why we can face the future with confidence in God. And if, if you got kicked in the teeth by headlines this week, you had fear and panic rise in your life, if you woke up with fear, Micah says to you, look to God 
and there's hope in this future. Two reasons why we can be hopeful in our future. The first is this, is because God will save His people. In the face of every threat, every heartache, every sorrow, every fear, panic-inducing issue, you and I have a confident future because God will save His people. So in verses 7 to 10, Micah lays out this promise for us by showing us these different facets of God's saving work. And Micah begins by giving us a course of action to take in the face of sin's damage. When we look at our lives, our world, with the woe of verses 1 to 6, how do we respond? Well, in verse 7, he says, I will look to the Lord. We spent some time in that verse last Sunday. It's a great pivot verse from the woe of the first six verses to the hope that follows. So Micah says, I will look to the Lord. He sees ruin in society. He looks at the world around him and he sees decay and horror. And then he shifts his eyes from that sinful ruin to the Lord who holds all things. Looking to God is not a way of avoiding the realities of of this life that he's living. Rather, it's how we should address the painful realities that we see. Micah teaches us that in verse 7 that looking to God is more than just shifting our eyes. It is about calling on God for help. He says, I look to the Lord. And then at the end of verse 7, he says, my God will hear me. So looking to God is not just averting our eyes. It is calling on God to help, to rescue, to deliver in the midst of this brokenness. Only when Micah has called on God does his tone change from sorrow to hope. Only when God has heard him does his tone change from sorrow to hope. Verses 1 to 6 are a lament. The tone is grief and horror. Verse 7 finds hope in God. And then in verse 8, he describes God's deliverance. God's saving me. It's going to look like hope. It's going to look like deliverance. In verse 8, he says, Do not rejoice over me, my enemy. Though I've fallen, I will stand up. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. Now, from, from Micah's vantage point, what is the situation of God's people? In his day, his vantage point, the enemy is profound. There's, there's enemies that are domestic in variety. People Uh, who are his neighbors, who are idolaters. They've rebelled against God, turned against him. And then there are enemies outside as well. So in verse 8, the enemy of God's faithful people is celebrating, thinking they've won. God's people have fallen down and God's people sit in darkness. These are poetic ways of describing present tense sorrows. But remember, Micah, in his ministry, has spoken of a future deliverer. He has this hope of a coming shepherd, a coming Messiah in chapter 5, a coming breaker in chapter 2, the one who will set God's people free. And so he knows the day will come when God silences the enemy and lifts his people and gives them light. So even though the enemy may cackle today, may feel like they've got victory today, Micah knows where history is headed. He knows that rescue is coming. Look, for God's people, our present sorrows don't make our future deliverance suspect. Rather, 
Our present sorrows make our future deliverance sweeter. When our enemy rejoices over us, when the enemy knocks us down, when the enemy puts us in darkness, that future deliverance is sweeter and sweeter for God's people. We don't need to be afraid. Verse 9 continues Micah's further description of God's salvation in terms of forgiveness. He's told us about hope. He's told us about deliverance. Verse 9, he tells us about forgiveness. He says, because I have sinned against him, that's God, I must endure the Lord's rage until he champions my cause and establishes justice for me. He will bring me into the light. I will see his salvation. In verse 9, Micah does something that's really remarkable. The whole time, his, his entire lifetime of ministry, he has been calling on God's people to repent from their sin. He's been naming sin, warning people of judgment, calling them by, uh, back to God's grace and God's rescue. But here in verse 9, Micah speaks as if he himself is the guilty party, as if he himself is the chief of sinners. This is a corporate confession on behalf of a believing remnant. So when he says, because I have sinned against him, he speaks as representative for all of God's people who have a just judgment coming from the Lord. And so Micah gives bad news to begin with. It's bad news that God is bringing judgment on their sin, but Micah also gives good news God's anger against sin does not last forever. God's rage will one day relent, and then his people will be forgiven. Here at the end of verse 9, he will bring me into the light. I will see his salvation. Hey, there's some intense hope here for you if you've been running from God. If you are sitting in the consequences of of decisions you have made, you can know that God's anger does not last forever. Though you may have made horrible decisions, though you may be running from God, choosing willful sin, you can share the prophet's words, he will bring me into the light. That's the kind of God you belong to. A God who is faithful when we are unfaithful. A God who is forgiving when we are sinful. And so Mike is giving us all these different descriptions of God's salvation. In verse 7, he said God's salvation looks like hope. And in verse 8, God's salvation looks like deliverance. And in verse 9, God's salvation looks like forgiveness of sins. And then finally in verse 10, God's salvation looks like vindication. In verse 10, then my enemy will see and she will be covered with shame. The one who said to me, where is the Lord your God? When Micah speaks of enemies, he speaks of literal enemies, flesh and blood enemies. He also speaks in this metaphorical, symbolic sense as well. Uh, uh, the great enemy of God's people is sin and Satan. But here, when he speaks of enemies, I think he's thinking very literally. And so history shows that Micah's confidence is the way things unfold. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Rome, and Greece. All the places where God's people historically were trampled upon, God's people have been vindicated. 
And so when we look to places in our world today where it is most dangerous to be a Christian, we can be confident that those oppressive regimes will likewise one day be covered with shame. Regimes in places like North Korea, Afghanistan, Somalia, Libya, Yemen, Eritrea, and many others will meet God's terrifying judgment. Though the enemy laughs one day, they will be covered in shame on that forever day. Because God vindicates his people. He doesn't let the enemy win. The future for God's people is marked by his salvation. And it's a salvation that looks like hope and deliverance and forgiveness and vindication. That future fortified Micah. And it fuels our confidence as well. Why can we, in the face of every societal ruin, every difficulty, be confident in the future God's giving us? Because one, God will save his people. And the second reason we can face our future with confidence is because God will establish his people. God's going to save his people. God's going to establish his people. So when Micah looks to the future... He doesn't just see the destruction of God's enemies, though that's a part of it, but he also sees the rebuilding of God's people, or as I've labeled it, the establishment of God's people. So look at verse 11. He says, a day will come for rebuilding your walls. On that day, your boundary will be extended. Who's Micah speaking to here? He was just talking to the enemies of God's people. But verse 11, he shifts his focus, and now he's speaking to the city of Jerusalem as a representative of God's people in God's kingdom. He uses this image repeatedly throughout his ministry, throughout the book of Micah. We've seen multiple places where he has addressed the city of Jerusalem. One example is in chapter 3, verse 12 where he is describing God's judgment on his people for their sin. And he says, Because of you, Zion will be plowed like a field, Jerusalem will become ruins, and the temple's mountain will be a high thicket. So in a reversal of the judgment and destruction of chapter 3, here in chapter 7, God will rebuild the city. Now, if you've spent a bit of time in the Old Testament... And you hear language talking about Jerusalem being rebuilt and walls being rebuilt. What, who's the first Old Testament name you think of? You're, you're going to go to Nehemiah, most likely. Because that was part of his work. After the exile, long after Micah's dead, uh, Nehemiah comes with God's people from exile. They return to Jerusalem. And Nehemiah's mission is to rebuild the walls of the city, the walls that defend Jerusalem uh, from her enemies. That's an important story, but it doesn't connect here to Micah chapter 7, verse 11. Because in biblical Hebrew, there are different words for different types of walls. You and I think of walls in this setting. We think of defensive fortified walls that protect the city. But but this is a different word for wall in verse 11. The wall that's described here in verse 11 are the types of walls that are stacked stones and they delineate property lines. It's the sort of stacked stone fence where you might keep your flock of sheep. And and so these are hedges of stacked stones that keep the sheep, delineate property. The same word is used back in chapter 2, verse 12, where God described the future of his people this way. He said, I will collect the remnant of Israel. I'll bring them together like sheep in a pen. 
So that word for sheep pen is the same word used here in verse 11. This is where it's to your advantage to be a New Englander today reading Micah chapter 7 verse 11 because all of the stacked stone walls around us are the types of walls that Micah is describing. You know exactly what he's talking about here. You've seen it. You drove by it this morning. That's the type of wall that will be rebuilt Having that wall means you have your own place, you have your own property, you, you have a, a place for your flocks to graze and to grow safely. It's a picture of flourishing in God's kingdom. And Micah doesn't just say that God's going to rebuild the old walls, but he says their boundary will be extended. So the city is going to need miles and miles of new fence. And why is that? It's because of all the people God will add to his forever family. Look at verse 12. He says, On that day, people will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt, even from Egypt to the Euphrates River, from sea to sea and mountain to mountain. So this verse describes the nations coming to God in faith, converting to him, turning to him, and being included in the covenant family. And on that future day when everything is set right, people from all nations, from all over the globe, will come and join the redeemed. Did you notice anything strange in verse 12 about the nations that Micah named? Redeemed people will come from where? Assyria and Egypt. It's assumed that by the time Micah spoke these words that an Assyrian army had already ransacked the southern kingdom of Judah on its way to take the northern kingdom of Israel. On their way, they defiled holy places and holy people committing all the atrocities of unregulated war. They did horrible things. That's the Assyrian army. Egypt, in Micah's mind, is forever identified as an enemy nation due to their enslavement of Israel. But God's redemption of mankind is so powerful, His grace so profound and so widespread, that it will even change the lives of Assyrians and Egyptians Salvation is not just for Israel or for Israel's allies, but God redeems whosoever believes. Now, you just got a nice warm fuzzy in your heart at that idea that God saves everyone who turns to him until you begin to think about your own enemies, until you think about the people you hate. Because that's who the Assyrians and the Egyptians are in this passage. Not quaint non-believers. They are horrific perpetrators of violence. Salvation is not just for the clean sinners, the approved sinners. It's for desperate sinners. And so let this be a caution to you to watch your language and your hearts when it comes to your enemies, especially your ideological enemies. No one is beyond the reach of God. 
So do not speak vile words or think vile thoughts against those whom God has chosen for eternal life. Why do you think Jesus said, love your enemies? Because even among them are children of God who, when they hear the gospel, will believe and be saved and become your brothers and sisters in Christ. God's bringing redemption, a powerful redemption to people from all over. So perhaps we could rewrite verse 12 this way. On that day, people will come to you from Pakistan and Provincetown, even from Hingham to San Francisco, from sea to sea and mountain to mountain. That's how powerful God's redemption is. So having described the flourishing and the expansion of God's people, Micah then turns his attention one last time to God's enemies in verse 13. Look at it. He says, then, that's on this future day, then the earth will become a wasteland because of its inhabitants and as a result of their actions. Why this negative language at the end of two really positive verses? It's because redemption is always a double-edged sword. It involves both the salvation of the righteous and the judgment of the unrighteous. So sin will be judged with finality. And every sinful threat will be removed from the earth. And in this, God enables his people to flourish forever and ever. That reality of God's salvation and God's judgment, this is not hypothetical. This is true specifically for you as a follower of Jesus Christ. Have you ever wondered what that future day will be like? What will heaven be like? What's the new heavens and the new earth going to be like? Have you ever stopped to think about what that's going to be? You know how Micah described Heaven, he described it as a place to farm, a place to raise sheep, a place to have a vineyard, a place to sit in the shade, a place without war, a place without threat, a place without weaponry. That's not how so many modern people describe heaven, right? When we talk about it, we talk about what? Streets of gold and mansions for everybody. So many people think that heaven will be a place of no work and infinite wealth. But that's just not how paradise is described from the book of Genesis to the book of Revelation. Paradise is the dignity of work. It's safety for work. It's flourishing in the work that we do. It's peace in our lives. Heaven is not like hitting the lottery. If you ask me, I think hitting the lottery would be like the opposite of heaven. Heaven is infinitely better than the best this world has to offer. It's the place where God's people will be established forever and ever. And that's why you and I can face our future with confidence with hope, with joy in the Lord. No matter what the threat is today, no matter how loud the enemy laughs today, we know who owns tomorrow. We know where all of this is headed. And so why can God's people face even our worst days with confidence in the future? Micah has given us two reasons. It's because 
God will save his people and God will establish his people. Those promises are immovable. And how do we know this to be true? How do we really know that the future belongs to God and his people? Well, the Apostle Peter answered this way. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 6, he said this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance. There's our future. Into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. There's Micah's future day. You rejoice in this, even though now, for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials. Micah only had promises of a Messiah. You have the reality. Jesus died and rose again, and he holds an inheritance for you, even though today you suffer grief in various trials. These trials today don't make our future suspect. They make it sweeter. And so Micah had confidence in God, even though he never saw Easter. What a privilege for you to see the empty tomb and know that God is saving you and establishing you. What you believe about the future matters more than you realize. Does God hold the future? Yes, he does. And is everything moving towards God's intended goal? Absolutely. Are you his child? Yes, you are by faith in Jesus Christ. And since he holds an inheritance for you, you can face every trial with unshakable joy. And since history is moving towards his intended purpose, you have nothing to be afraid of. And since he has people from all nations, you can give your life to call the nations to that holy, eternal city. Trouble might find you tomorrow. The enemy might laugh, knock you down, put you in the dark. And when it does, don't you be afraid, not for a moment. Look to the Lord. Stand up. Step into the light because you will see his salvation. He has promised it. Now, what if you are not a follower of Jesus Christ? How should you think about your future? You can think about it uh, perhaps as, as yet to be determined. You might think of the future as sort of vacillating between good and bad depending on whether the causes you champion are, are reigning that day or not. That's a really sad way to think about the future. See, the Bible says the future is certain. God is victorious. He will accomplish his grand work of redeeming his people and his creation. And that his people will enjoy eternity with God in creation as he has always intended. This perfect eternity is not yours automatically. It's for those who turn to God through faith in Jesus. We can borrow the words of Micah here. From verse 9, 
he said, I have sinned against God and I must endure the Lord's fury. Well, that's true for all people. We have all sinned against God. Every single one of us is deserving of the Lord's fury and rage because we have rebelled against Him. We have given our hearts to false gods. We have willfully chosen sin. We have called evil good and good evil. And God loves you still. Though you've rebelled against Him, He loves you. And His love led Him to send Jesus, His one and only Son, to take His fury for your sin at the cross. Jesus died in your place. He's the only one that could do this. There's no one else that could die for your sins the way Jesus has. He is fully human and fully God. He has to be fully human in order to really live and really die. He has to be fully God for that death to be effective for your salvation. And after he died, three days later, he rose from the dead. And if he rose from the dead, every promise in him is true. If he really rose from the dead, and we believe what the Bible says about this and what the eyewitnesses say about this, that he really rose from the dead, then salvation is found in him and in no one else. He loves you. And today he's calling you to his eternal city where your salvation is complete and you are established forever. And so, friend, would you look to the Lord today for your salvation? When you do, he will hear you and he'll bring you home. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for so great a salvation as this. A salvation that anchors our hope and our joy in the future that's held by you. Every day we are assaulted by enemies of various kinds. Living in a world under the decay and the ruin of sin sin perpetrated against us, sin that we ourselves perpetrate. And Lord, in this, we need you to lift us, to bring us into the light. Father, I'm grateful that that's what you do. And so I pray this morning for any of my brothers and sisters in here who are running from you, who are living either in, in a legalism that is unrighteous or, or a liberalism that is unrighteous, Lord, that they would, they would turn to you and find their rescue again in Christ. Bring times of refreshing. Let your rage subside. Lord, lift them and clean them and set them on the rock again. And I pray for friends in here that don't know you as their Savior, but that this day they've heard your call and they're ready to turn from their sin. Dear Lord, let them do so quickly. And Father, thank you that today when they call on your name, when they put their faith in Jesus Christ, they belong to your eternal city forever. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for establishing us. Thank you for a vision of the future that strengthens us today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This morning we're going to respond.